You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. Over summer, we all saw the tragic images of people's homes and livelihoods being destroyed by the catastrophic bushfires, and our hearts go out to the people impacted. And in the aftermath, we saw people want to help by providing info on what financial help was available for people people directly and indirectly impacted by the bushfires. And some of this involved information on accessing superintendent grounds of financial hardship, However, these rules weren't really written with natural disasters in mind and even severely impacted people may not qualify. So we thought we'd do a podcast on how these rules work in the hope of providing some clarity on when and how people may be able to access super when they find themselves in a difficult position. My name is Craig Day. I'm the head of the First Tech team and here to discuss with me accessing super on the grounds of severe financial hardship is Kim Guess, my Senior Technical Services Manager. Hi, Kim. Hi, Craig. How are you? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Now, Kim, you, like me, uh, watch with sadness the nightly news over the summer holidays about those bushfires. And what struck me was not only the scale of the direct impact with people, you know, losing houses and farms, etc., but also the indirect impact. So we're seeing people potentially losing jobs because they worked for a business that was destroyed. Maybe they worked for a farm or or some sort of uh, business that was destroyed by the fires. Um, But also people maybe indirectly losing their job because they worked in the tourism industry. And as we saw in that peak period, all those people being moved out of the the areas impacted by the fire. So potentially losing their job that they may have on a seasonal basis that's really important for them to help them get through the year. So um, in the aftermath of all of that, we also saw a lot of articles um, come out with people really just wanting to help and talking about the different types of government assistance available. And in a lot of those, we saw people talking about potential, the potential to access super on the grounds of financial hardship. But it's not really necessarily that simple, is it? No, it's not. Um, we do have a condition of release for super called the Severe Financial Hardship Condition of Release, but one of the main um, eligibility criteria to be able to access your super under that condition of release is that you have to have received a Commonwealth Income Support Payment. Yeah, so so there's two types. There's two real tests, isn't there? So yeah. do you want to run me through the first test and, sure. then, and then we'll have a look at the second one? So um, how does it work for people? I think, what is it, that they've reached their preservation age? So how does it work there? Yeah, that's right. So for clients who've reached their preservation age, um, they can access their super under the severe financial hardship condition of release if they've received a Commonwealth income support payment for a cumulative period of 39 weeks since reaching preservation age. 
So when I say a cumulative period, so even if you've been on and off income support payments, as long as you've in total have received an income support payment for 39 weeks since turning preservation age, then you meet that requirement. Um, So it's not everybody who's obviously going to meet that requirement. It's only people who for, you know, fairly nine months of the year have um, have received an income support payment who's right. going to tick, be able to tick that box. And the other requirement there, I think there's something about gainful employment. Yeah, that's right. They can't be gainfully employed on either a part-time or a full-time basis on the time at the date of application. So not, part-time is 10 hours a week, so they can't be gainfully employed, um, you know, minimum of 10 hours or, or more than that um, at the time of application to be eligible. Right, so you could you could actually have someone here that has lost their home mm-hmm. um, through the bushfires, um, but they're still gainfully employed. Maybe they're gainfully employed in in some um, industry or or business that hasn't been directly impacted by the fires, um, mm-hmm. and they haven't been on Commonwealth government income support payments. So therefore, mm-hmm. even though they lost their fires, they're not going to be able to access. Yeah, that's right. So unfortunately, they could have had be in severe financial hardship, but if they haven't received the income support payment for that period of time, they're not going to, unfortunately, be able to meet that condition of release. So you mentioned there that a person to be eligible needs to be receiving a Commonwealth income support payment. Now, the government makes lots of pe- uh, payments to people for lots of different reasons. What what's actually meets the definition of a Commonwealth income support payment? Sure. So what they're talking about there is payments from um, either Centrelink or the Department of Veteran Affairs. And if we're looking at Centrelink payments, they're looking at pensions and allowances, such as the age pension, disability support pension or new start allowance. And if we're looking at payments from DVA, we're looking at the service pension or an income support supplement. Um, Payments such as youth allowance, whether clients in full-time study, Aus study or family tax benefit, unfortunately don't meet the requirement of a Commonwealth right. income support payment. And little payments, um, you know, like care allowance or so forth, don't meet that requirement either. So it's got to be, you know, uh, an income support payment such as an allowance or a pension in most cases. Interestingly, though, farm household allowance does meet that criteria. So you may have some people who are getting farm household allowance because, um, you know, they've they've um, meet the criteria and they're due to the drought, you know, they they're yep. um, may have a farm that's not um, producing the income that it was previously, so they're receiving a farm household allowance and they that also meets the definition of a Commonwealth so, income support. So we might have a farm or someone like that that um, has been receiving the, mm-hmm. the farm household allowance yep. for that cumulative period of, uh, what was it, 39 weeks, which is, what, nine months. Yeah. Um, in that situation, they mm-hmm. may qualify. Yep. But otherwise, really someone impacted by the bushfires is, is unlikely. It's not really yeah. – these rules aren't really written for natural disasters, are they? No, they're not really, yeah. no, unfortunately. So in this case, so if I, if I qualify under this test where I've reached preservation age and I've been receiving these payments for, the, for this nine-month period, mm-hmm. how much am I allowed to access? Yeah, there's actually not a, a dollar restriction um, when you qualify under this condition of release. So what happens is if you um, meet the criteria of being over preservation age and th- 39 weeks and received those um, income support payments for 39 weeks since turning preservation age, then that makes all of your superannuation monies unrestricted, non-preserved in that fund. So, um, you know, you're able to access so your superannuation no you balance. Can, you can take the whole amount. That's right. That's interesting, is it? Um, mm. I know that some clients, if you're over preservation age, you, you may have actually commenced a transition to retirement income stream. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're telling me there is actually if you do qualify for financial hardship, that could turn that 
transition to retirement income stream from preserved benefit that you use to fund one of those income streams into unrestricted non-preserved benefit. Now, the interesting thing though, though, when you think about that is that when you think about, okay, well, my TTR income stream has now gone from being preserved component to unrestricted non-preserved component, which means I'm allowed to access it. Mm. A lot of people may think that that actually converts it into one of these tax-free retirement phase income streams, such as you know, an account-based pension where all the underlying earnings are tax-free. But actually, when you think about that, the only time a TTR pension converts across to being a retirement phase income stream and therefore all the underlying earnings are tax-free is when someone's satisfied a condition of race for retirement, also permanent incapacity, terminal illness and reaching age 65, also where that TTR pension is a reversionary pension. So mm. actually satisfying the financial hardship definition, he wouldn't, yes, it would convert your TTR pension into being unrestricted and unpreserved, but it actually wouldn't result in it becoming a tax-free income stream such as an account-based pension. So you'd have a weird situation there where you'd mm. have everything unrestricted, non-preserved, but it wouldn't be taxed the same mm. yeah, as, yep. a, as an account-based pension. Mm. All right, so I can access the full amount on that one. So what – now, you mentioned there that there's two rules. So one, we've got someone reach preservation age. Mm -hmm. What's the other rule here? So there's another, another definition of severe financial hardship for people who – could be below preservation age. Um, they could even be above preservation age, but they don't meet the, the criteria right, that yep. we just spoke about. Mm -hmm. And for this one, the person has to have received a Commonwealth income support payment for a continuous period of 26 weeks. So that's 26 weeks in a row. They have to have received an income support payment. And they also have to have been eligible for that income support payment when they apply for the severe financial hardship condition of release. And also importantly, they have to be unable to meet reasonable and immediate family living expenses. Aha, uh -huh. right. Now, um, first of all, let me just go back. So you mentioned their Commonwealth income support payments again. Mm -hmm. I assume that is the same definition? Same definition that we just spoke about. That's right. right. So when I'm thinking about the, the differences here, so one, there's no requirement for me to be unemployed under this test. That's right. Yeah, they don't look at um, whether you're employed at the time of application right. they do the other test. Two, I've got to be receiving the Commonwealth Income Support Payment for 26 weeks, but that's yep. got to be continuously. That's right. So it's not if I've had two months ago, I had two or three weeks off before I went back on. Yeah. Now I've got to wait another six again. weeks from it starts again, right? Yeah. Um, and the other one that's quite different here is that someone's got to be unable to meet reasonable and immediate family living expenses. Now, mm. um that sounds a bit subjective. Who who tests that or how does that work? Yeah, so it is a little bit subjective. It's up to the super fund trustee. So the particular super fund that they're applying to to release their benefits under severe financial hardship will have their own criteria as to what um, meets um, reasonable and immediate family living expenses. So it could differ from fund to fund. Right, so I know some funds, they kind of, I wouldn't say shirk this responsibility, but their rule may be that they'll simply accept accept a, a statutory declaration from mm -hmm. the member yep. stating that they're unable to make, meet their reasonable and immediate family living expenses and yes. the trustee, after checking the other um, objective requirements there, and they may release there. But other trustees will want to make mm -hmm. a decision, won't they? They will actually want to look at the member's financial circumstances 
and yep. actually exercise their discretion on whether or not they're actually going to lease, re- release that money. So mm. in that situation, what are the types of things that a trustee may look at? Yeah, so a trustee um, may ask for details of any sources of income that the person has, so any Centrelink payments, any employment income, any other income that they might receive, such as child support payments. Um, They might also ask for details of any liquid assets, so to see whether they have any funds available to help them meet their living expenses. And then they also um, may ask for details of their fortnightly expenses, such as mortgages, rent, one-off expenses, outstanding debts, etc., Right. So here, I suppose a a trustee could actually look and say in terms of liquidity, Mm. um, they actually could also be looking back at the member's own superannuation benefits and seeing, is any of that unrestricted, non-preserved? Yeah, that's right. So that would be something that they might look at. Yeah. Um, What about some some trustees want all the details, right? So they, Mm. they might want details on the grocery bill. Yeah. fortnightly or weekly grocery bill. They might want to understand what your bills are in terms of your electricity, your gas, your telephone bills. Other trustees Mm. step back a little bit here, don't they? What do they do? Yeah, some of them have a a sort of an amount that they've determined is an appropriate amount for somebody to be able to meet their living expenses. So depending on the client situation, whether they have a partner or children or whatever, they'll have a set amount where they say, well, you know, they need X amount for groceries per fortnight um, rather than the actual expenditure that the person's had. And I suppose the other interesting thing with this one is it's the trustee determining what they think is reasonable. So... Mm. God, I've got some friends that, you know, they're what they consider to be a reasonable and immediate family living expense um, might mm. be, you know, trips off to uh, to Paris mm. every <laughs> every six months yeah. or have very expensive tastes. But um, in this situation, highly unlikely that they're going to look at any sort of discretionary or any, include any sort of discretionary expenditure and that sort of thing. They're really mm. coming back and looking, okay, what are the necessities of life? and actually wanting to know what you spend on those necessities of life or mm. by default saying, well, okay, well, you've got a spouse and you've got three kids, we're going to assume that someone would have living costs of X amount and they'll just factor that in and rather than see or ask for any evidence of what those expenses are. But other times they will want documentary evidence. So, for example, I think rent might be one of the things yeah. they'd look for. Anything else there? So, And they're looking for amounts that are due and payable Right now, they're not looking at future expenses that the person might have. They're looking at bills that need to be paid, you know, that are outstanding and that sort right. of things. Then yep. um, they might ask for details of those outstanding bills. Yeah. So, in, in that sort, you probably have to provide documentary mm. evidence mm. of that. I think um, we saw a situation where someone was um, they had a legal expense that had already accrued, and this this legal expense was mm. very significant. It was actually what drove them into financial hardship. Right. Um, and in that situation, the trustee just needed evidence of what that legal bill was. Mm. Um, sometimes I'm also, I, when we were putting the work together for this podcast, I was chatting to the trustee and the, the person responsible for releasing these types of amounts. Um, and what they did tell me was that immediate... For the Colonial First State Funds? Yeah, for the yeah. Colonial First State yeah. Funds. And what they were telling me was that immediate, you know, we've had questions before from advisors, What's what does immediate, immediate mean? Mm. It's just like immediate means immediate means immediately, right? Yes. So, no, no, a bill in six, due in six months' time is not an immediate mm. expense. However, um, the head of this um, Benefits Payments Committee did say to me that 
well, if they see a, a bill that is coming up and is due almost immediately, it hasn't been levied yet. Or And the, the example they gave me was someone that was uh, needing to go in for urgent medical tests right. to be done. Yeah. And for those tests to be done, there was an upfront cost they had to pay at the time. Um, and so the trustee said, well, it, you know, you haven't already incurred these costs, but we can see there that your doctor has written us a letter to say, basically, mm. you need to go into these next week. We know you need to pay for it. So it's not a cost you've already incurred, but mm. we can see it's basically due now or yeah. in the immediate future and they would release the money in that situation. Mm. Um, all right, so... The good news is that a lot of trustees won't want to know how much you're spending at Woolies. Um, other things like, you know, mortgage debts and all that sort of stuff, that would be hopefully reasonably easy to, to demonstrate. So if I was renting, I could take along my rental or, uh, agreement and show them what that was, um, any other bills or expenses. Another good one would be something like a credit card debt. Um, so that, that would be an example of something that was mm -hmm. in arrears. Um, now, let's say the trustee is satisfied that one, I've met the, the criteria around the income support payment, two, they're also satisfied that I'm unable to meet my immediate, reasonable and immediate living expenses. Do I get to access my full amount? No. So under this one, um, there is a, a limit. So you can take out a minimum of $1,000 or a maximum of $10,000 per annum, and you can only have one withdrawal permitted in any 12-month period. Ah, so two things. So per annum. So is that, how is that measured? It's per. It's 12 months from the date of the last withdrawal. Right. So, so it's, it's not a calendar year or a financial okay. year. It's in every 12-month period. All right. Mm. And the other thing you said, one, I get one go at this every 12 months. Yeah. So what that says to me is most people are going to go and just ask for the full 10 grand, aren't That's they? That's right, because they, they don't know what else is going to come up in the next 12 months, so yeah. they're going to try and get the most that they can out they in a lot of think, circumstances. Yeah, they may mm. think they only need four, but mm. if it turns out they need eight, they can't go back That's next right. month and say, can I get another four? So they'll most circumstances they'll, they'll want the full 10. Mm. Um what happens here? So this ten thousand dollars is how's that work if I've got multiple super mm. funds? Well, it's actually on a per fund basis. So right. this is one of the issues that was brought up in this treasury review that we had in the last couple of years on accessing your super under the compassionate grounds and severe financial hardship condition release. They they brought up a lot of concerns with this condition of release, and um, one of them was that they found cases where someone might um, access their superannuation from a number of different super funds under that same condition of release. So um, they're making that up. They've got they've met their requirement for their twenty six weeks. Yeah. They are unable to meet reasonable immediate family living expenses, mm -hmm. and they put applications into multiple funds. So therefore, potentially drawing out twenty, thirty. $40,000, depending on yes. the number of funds they've got, obviously. Yeah, and that's actually um, not against the yeah, law. I, yeah, I remember reading through the regs mm. and you look at it and you just go, actually, there's nothing there. It's a per fund basis, oh, It's yeah. on a per fund basis. Now, and what, really when you think about that too, when a trustee gets an application, mm. it has no way of knowing whether you've got two or more super funds and whether you've made no. an application to those other funds. So that's just the Unless they have a question in their in their documentation, have you accessed super from any other funds? Like, because they can take into account other sources of income that you have available ah. to you. So that's the that's probably the only way that they could 
ascertain whether you've already taken money out of another fund and then say, well, you've already got the money to meet your living expenses. You don't need to access it from our fund. That's about the only way that can be picked up. Okay. Mm. Now, if I've only got one super fund Mm -hmm. uh, and I do need an extra $10,000 after 12 months, um, can I get it out on the same or do I need to make another application? Another application and you would need to... Prove, again, that you now have new immediate family living expenses that you're unable to right. meet. Right, because the yeah. trustee needs to be satisfied that your circumstances mm. haven't changed, so they're That's just right. going to ask you to clarify everything again. Yeah. All right, so talking practicalities, yeah. um, I think I meet the requirements. Mm-hmm. What do I need to do now? Yeah, so you need to fill out a form. Um, that you probably get from that superannuation funds website or mm-hmm. you contact the super fund and ask for the form. Yep. Um, you need to provide details of your Centrelink or DVA customer reference number so that they can um, verify with Centrelink or DVA that you've actually been in receipt of those ah. Commonwealth income support payments for the required amount of time. So that's interesting. I mm. The trustee will look that up. It yep. doesn't. I don't have to go off to Centrelink and get a letter. No, well, these days um, a number of the super funds can access that uh, information electronically from Centrelink or DBA through the CCES system. Right. Yeah. So that's important too because mm-hmm. I could imagine that if I need this money in a hurry and I provide all my documentation to my mm. super fund trustee mm. and the trustee's happy with everything but they just have to confirm that I've met this 26 or 39-week requirement. Yeah. If they're writing off to Centrelink, then mm, that could take, take weeks, right? Mm. So what you're telling me is they can just go online. That's why we need that customer reference number. That's right. They type in the customer reference number and I would imagine they'll get some sort of report back to say that this person has been received of Commonwealth Income Support for X number of weeks or yeah. X number of weeks since turning whatever. So mm. they can quickly and easily look it up that way. Mm. Um, what other information... Uh, need so to provide here. They'd need to indicate on the form which of those two tests they're applying under. So are they over preservation age and have received um, income support for 39 weeks since turning preservation age or are they applying under the other one where they've only received income support for a continuous period of 26 weeks but they're unable unable to meet reasonable and immediate family right. living expenses. Mm-hmm. So they need to indicate which one of the, they're applying under so that then they can get the required information from Centrelink as to whether you meet the criteria right. under those two. And that's where they're going to be asking for those details about mm. do you have a spouse, what do they earn, yeah. what other forms of income are you getting in, are you getting any Centrelink payments, employment from employment income or any child support payments is typically what they'll ask for if they're going to yeah. exercise discretion. Otherwise, they might just ask for a statutory declaration, I suppose. Yeah. Um, value of your liquid assets. Now, this was the interesting mm. one. I also mentioned this... Um, to the um, the person that I was chatting to at Colonial First Aid about um, what sort of evidence they would require. And I asked them um, for information, you know, what sort of information do you require around um, liquid assets? And the comment that they made to me was, Craig, when you see people applying for this, mm. this is their last option. And normally mm. you will see, you'll see a, a figure written there of zero. And they're only coming to the super fund really when it mm. is their last roll of the dice. They've got no other way of funding this. Mm. Um, she actually told me, I don't know whether it was a funny story or a very, very frightening story of a situation where um, someone was applying for the release of benefits on grounds of financial hardship. 
um, on the basis that they were getting death threats in terms of pay up your pay up your debts, um, otherwise something that's going to happen. So she was mm. using that as an evidence. As Craig, if there's anything that they can get their hands on, they've mm. already used it. So by the time they come to us, there's nothing, nothing right. left. So yeah, so mm. quite a quite a sobering one that one. Mm. Um, in terms of Details about uh, your fortnightly expenses. So once again, mortgage, rent, one-off expenses. So maybe potentially copies of credit card statements. Um, mm-hmm. I also confirmed um, with this person whether or not we required um, certified copies and they confirmed to, to me that they didn't, This or Colonial First Aid doesn't, um, but right. other funds, you know, each they fund have will different. have its own rules, Yeah, which is, I think, part of the problem and we'll talk about that in a, in a moment mm. um, now in terms of okay we've met all these requirements how long is it actually going to take to get the money that will depend on the super fund trustee but most of them try to pay the, make the payment as soon as possible because they realize that the person you know really yeah. requires the funds so mm. the interesting thing there is one you can provide all your documents to us and we would encourage anything the trustee provides give it mm. to them because you don't want it being delayed by them mm. coming back and saying oh can you give us information about your mortgage payments or anything like that um, also in in that respect um, I suppose it's also important there that if we are going to be going back to Centrelink we've got that ability to do that quite quickly mm. so then it really comes down to how quickly the trustee can turn this around. And, mm. and as indi- indicated to me for Colonial First Aid, they'll, they'll generally release this within the week once they receive the application so they can oh, process right. it that quickly. So that's mm. good news. Mm. Um, now, what else does the client potentially need to think about? Um, well, I think taxation is a really important issue that they need to, to be aware of. So um, when you access your benefits under severe financial hardship, it's still subject to the normal taxation rules. So um, if someone's over 60, then that's fine. It's, you know, they can receive a lump sum tax free. But if they're between preservation age and age 60, well, the first 210,000 of the taxable tax component will be tax free, but anything above that will be taxed at 15% plus Medicare. But I guess the one that we're probably most concerned about is people who are under preservation age. Um, For them, they're going to pay 20% plus Medicare on the taxable tax component. So So that's 22%. That's quite a big amount that they're losing. And um, so they might think, oh, I'm going to get 10,000 out, but really they're They're losing 22% of that. They're going to get 7,800 if I can do my primary school maths properly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's a really important consideration. If Mm. they're thinking they're going to get 10 and they're under preservation age, um, they're not. They're going to have tax withheld from that payment. Mm. Um, Now, we mentioned before that Treasury looked at these rules recently around the early release of benefits. And actually, I should make a call out here. There's another grounds for releasing benefits uh, on compassionate grounds. Now, Mm. we're not talking about those today. That might be the subject of another um, podcast. Mm. We're just looking at financial hardship. So what Treasury did is it looked at early release under grounds of both compassionate grounds as well as grounds of financial hardship. And it was really seeking input from community industry about whether the rules were working as they were intended or whether any changes should be made. Now, in terms of um, financial hardship, they made a number of recommendations here, or Treasury took that feedback and made a number of recommendations to government. Now, the first one was around 
um, this 26 continuous weeks. Mm. So what did they say there? Yeah, so there was a number of people who gave feedback that that was quite restrictive, that, um, you know, that it had to be 26 weeks continuously and if there was any break in payment and so forth and it resets. And yep. um, and so there was a, a some feedback to say perhaps we should make that requirement a bit less restrictive and extend it so that the person has to receive 26 weeks, sorry, income support pe- period, sorry, income support payments for a cumulative period of 26 weeks out of 40 weeks. Right. So there could have been some breaks in payment, but as long as they receive it for 26 out of 40, then they would meet that requirement. Right, so that makes it a bit easier. Mm. Um, also, they want they recommended retaining this subjective test around mm. unable to meet reasonable and immediate family living expenses. But what they have suggested here is shifting the assessment away from the trustee mm. to the ATO. And the reason for this was? Uh, well, the ATO currently administer compassionate grounds. So right. they're the ones that are deciding whether people are able to access their superannuation under compassionate grounds. And so they thought that, it, you know, to, to also move the responsibility for making that decision under severe financial hardship to that same make a lot of body sense. would make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think one of the other advantages of that to me would be rather than having different funds apply different tests so Mm. we may have one fund happy to accept a statutory declaration that you're unable to meet reasonable and immediate family living expenses and and yet another trustee may Mm. require copies you know certified copies Mm. of every single expense and then make a a decision around whether or not they're going to release now if it does go to the ATI I can see an advantage there of Mm. you've got one set one person or one um, government agency making the decision there so they would be applying one consistent set of standards across the whole industry. I think Mm. also when I think about it what that would also do is bring it back to one amount released per person so no more of this game of you know applying to different super Mm. funds you're applying to the ATO uh, and so, you know, if it's Kim Guest applying or Craig Day applying, I get $10,000 out maximum. I can't make multiple applications to the ATO because they're going to know I'm the same person. They're probably going to base it off my tax file number or something like that. Yeah. Um, they also talked about playing around with the amount, the, the maximum amount you can get where you're under preservation age. What did they say there? Yeah, so currently, you know, it's up to $10,000 in a 12-month period. They were looking at um, making it $10,000 over a 24-month period. So to to prevent that sort of every 12 months making the application again and getting another 10K out, they were trying to sort of slow that down so that it's only 10K in a 24-month period. Right. So in one way, you know, getting rid of that 26 continuous weeks makes it a bit easier And then on the flip side, they're making it a bit harder, aren't they? They're only saying 10 grand every 24 months instead of every 12 months. Mm. And then finally, um, I think uh, this is one recommendation I thought, oh, thank thank goodness for that because it it did make a bit of a a silly situation. And that was simply to allow members to make multiple withdrawals during that 24-month period or whatever period that they're going to allow rather Mm. than just that one single. So... You know how we talked about you're not quite sure, but you only mm. get one go at the at the cherry, so you're just going to automatically take the, the maximum amount that you can. Yeah. Now they're allowing you to take multiple. So, okay, you've mm. got this 10 grand available to you over the next 24 months. Um, how much do you need? You might only need four grand. So you can take that mm. without that fear just in case you need more. 
you can come back and get that additional amount. So now we know that this is what Treasury recommended. We haven't actually seen Mm-mm. in the government come out with any recommendations or announcements to change these rules, have we? No, I don't think it's gone beyond that paper being released. Yeah. We've got no draft reg- regulations. So we're now in February 2020. Um, we're expecting the, the federal budget to be handed down uh, when in May. It's normally the second Tuesday in May. Um, last year was a bit different, wasn't it, because we had the election in yeah. May, so we had it brought forward to April. Mm. Um, we, if we're going <clears> to <throat> see something, highly likely that we may see it announced in the federal budget or in the lead-up to the federal budget, because it would have mm. a, a fiscal impact if they're looking yeah. at making it potentially easy to access. So, Kim, I think that's everything. Is there anything else I need to think about here? Uh, well, there's probably just um, something else to mention is that if somebody needs to access their super and they don't meet the eligibility criteria oh, yes. under severe What's financial hardship... Uh, they may be able to commence a transition to retirement pension if they've reached their preservation age. So oh, yes. that might be a way um, of accessing at least some of their super. They can draw a maximum of 10% per annum as pension payments. And so that might help in that kind of situation. Right. So if I'm someone that um, has reached my preservation age, but I haven't got that 39 weeks up my sleeve, potentially I could... Uh, no, I'm not going to get it via that anyways because I haven't got, uh, I haven't met the requirements maybe for my income support payments. Yeah. So I could flick on a TTR. Now, remember mm. with a TTR, um, you've got a maximum of 10%, but that maximum of 10% isn't prorated. So I could be starting this maybe in May or in June. Mm-hmm. Um, and my maximum, you know, maybe I've got $150,000 in super, um, so my 10% maximum is $15,000. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm starting that TTR pension in June, I don't have to take a prorated pension. I can take the full 10%, can't I? Yeah, that's right. There's no proriding for the maximum. Yeah. Mm. I suppose, though, a word of warning there is um, mm. this whole issue where around TTR income streams, and, and you see it from time to time where... Mm. People get themselves in a bit of a bind. They think they can start a TTR, take their 10% and immediately shut it down again. Now, here we do need to be a little bit cautious because if we're looking at commencing an income stream, it has to be a legitimate income stream. And there is a a ruling around what when income streams commences and when they cease. And basically what the ATO says there is an income stream is a a sequence of payments that all relate to each other. So... If you were just to turn on a TTR, immediately take 10% and then shut it down again, um, Mm. they may look at that as an early access scheme, certainly Mm. if you did that multiple times. Mm. So we sometimes see people, you know, spruiking a strategy, start a TTR, take 10%, shut it down, start another one, take 10%, shut it down, start the third one, take 10%, shut it down. To Mm. me, you haven't started any income streams at all there because you never intended to take a sequence of income stream payments. So mm. even if you are to start a TTR, um, you would want to think about continuing to, you know, the intention is to continue to run that over a period of time. Um, I would avoid, you know, the the thought that just putting in place some advice around that that would simply say start a TTR, take your 10% and immediately shut it down again because mm. you may have questions around whether you've actually commenced an income stream at all. Yeah. Now, I think that's about it. Kim, anything else? No, that's all from me. Terrific. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, 
You need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.